Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. When you want the best, you have to act fast, especially when hiring for your business. You want to find the most talented people before the competition scoops them up. And the best way to do that? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds top talent fast. In fact, four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash Spotify. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hello and welcome to Seven Pillars. Um, my name's Alan Davis and uh, each week on Seven Pillars we have a guest come along and tell us about the important things in their life. Events, bits of culture, places, memories, things of their choosing that either have influenced them or that they particularly enjoyed. We'll find out what these very personal choices are each time. And I'm very lucky this week uh, to have Jay Perini as my guest. Jay is a, is a biographer, he's a poet, he's a critic, he's a screenwriter, he's a novelist. He has certainly lived a life and, uh, and I'm delighted to have him join me. Hello, Jay. Hi, hi, Alan. You hear me pretty well? I've got you, yes. Where are you speaking from? Where are, where are you? I'm sitting in my old farmhouse on a mountaintop in Vermont, looking out across the, through the windows at the Green Mountains. Oh, that just sounds wonderful. In other words, I'm in the middle of nowhere, which is, which is where I want to be. <laughs> the best, always been, the best place to be. How wonderful. I've never been to Vermont, and, but I'm told it's very beautiful. It really is, yeah. Very lucky to be here, really. I've been to Montreal. That's not far away, is it? No, it's really only an hour and a half, two <coughs> hours. Uh, so that's our closest city. So if it really comes to it, you can get over the border. Well, except during the pandemic, you can't. Oh, no, really? Uh, yes, so I'm stuck. I can't even go to Montreal. <laughs> and that's close to where you're working? You work as a, as a professor? You're still teaching and busy, busy yourself? I'm still teaching. I teach at one of these little small colleges, very elite, exclusive colleges, universities, really. But I always tell people it's as though you took an Oxford or a Cambridge college and picked it up by a helicopter and hovered over and dropped it into the middle of the Vermont woods you would have Middlebury College. It sounds idyllic. Yeah, it's great. It's a great place. And uh, I'm still teaching, still teaching. But then again, I'm only 72, so I have to keep teaching yeah. another 10 years or so. Okay. <laughs> now, on your website, jayperini.com, it says Jay Perini is a poet, novelist, biographer, screenwriter, and critic. Did you, did you order those things? Do you think of yourself as a poet first? Yes. Oh, absolutely. You know, I, my whole life I started, right, I've written poetry, and I began my career, so to speak, writing life as a poet uh, when I was, you know, 18 or 19. And, uh, you know, my first write books were poetry, and uh, I've always thought of poetry as primary in my life, and it's what I teach. I teach pretty much only poetry. So then the novels came along, and then the biographies, and then finally the screenplays. And the critic is the last... The, last the critic the would be the last, but I've been a critic all along. You know, I did, did a PhD at St. Andrews in Scotland, so I've been doing criticism uh, all along. You like to pick the, uh, the scenic places to live your life. I've lived in good places, St. Andrews, Scotland, Vermont. Well, let's start, with your let's start then with the poetry. Let's start with your first choice. Uh, in literature, you've chosen Robert Frost. Yeah. Well, you know, Robert Frost was the poet of Vermont, and uh, he actually taught here at Middlebury College. He has a, had a house here from 19, oh, really from 1927 till his death in 63. I would say Vermont was his main farmhouse. He lived up here in Middlebury, and the Frost house is still owned by the college. It's a beautiful little farmhouse with a writing cabin where Frost wrote his poetry. And 20-some uh, years ago, I actually wrote Frost's biography. I worked on that book for actually two decades. Wow. So uh, I did write the biography of Robert Frost. So unfortunately, I know more about Frost than I should. Uh, <laughs> Frost was a crusty, difficult, brilliant man. And, uh, you know, he, he was probably uh, America's greatest poet in the 20th century. It's a, as the years go by, it's, 
important to remember really what an extraordinary influence it had and, and this uh, did he not win four four pulitzer prizes pulitzer prizes for poetry it's pretty extraordinary literary career oh my god and he would he was cover of time magazine he would give readings and they would have to fill a football stadium to hear him you know to, to, to accommodate the crowds he read out in uh, Michigan, University of Michigan, and they had to fill the football stadium, 60,000 people. I mean, try to find a, a poetry reading today with that many people in it. That's mind-boggling. It really is extraordinary, isn't it? And, and, and is there a particular Frost poem that you'd like to... Well, you know, one of his most popular poems is a beautiful one about two Vermont farmers. One of them is the speaker, and they meet once a spring to walk down a dry stone wall. Do you know what a dry stone wall is? I surely do. And you have them in Britain. You pile them up stone on stone, and there's no cement holding them up. And so every year, these two farmers walk the line. They go down, one on one side, one on the other, and they repair places where animals or hunters have broken through the walls. So every year, it's a repair job. And so it's a poem about boundaries between people, and it's so metaphorical because it's really about boundaries between cultures, civilizations, races, whatever. I mean, our whole world is about boundaries now. We're in a world of nationalism. So, so Frost's poem just becomes more and more relevant. I heard an Israeli politician on the, on the radio the other day, and he said, well, he said, um, people criticize us here in Israel for building a wall between the Palestinians and the Israelis. Well, let me just say, as Robert Frost said in Mending Wall, good fences make good neighbors. <laughs> and uh, he's got it absolutely wrong. I mean, the whole poem is, is a deconstruction, a dismantling of the idea that good fences necessarily make good neighbors. Well, that's exactly it. The man who wants to make the fence is, uh, is later on in the poem, he moves in darkness, as it seems to me. Exactly. But you hit on a good note there. He moves in darkness, as it seems to me, not of woods only in the shade of trees. He will not go behind his father's saying, and he likes having thought of it so well, he says again, good fences make good neighbors. <laughs> Which, of course, is an absolute nonsense. It's nonsense. It's just, yeah, and, and, and Frost is the speaker, and he says, spring is the mischief in me, and he's teasing the man all the way through the poem. You know, it's quite wonderful. Yes, it's brilliant. Now, the other thing about Robert Frost uh, I found as I looked, uh, looked him up and read about him is one of those people who appears in lists of quotes to an extraordinary degree. Um, oh, my God, doesn't he? I mean, yes, to, you know, think of uh, two roads diverged in the old wood, you know, or uh, and miles to go before I sleep. That's exactly right. I'm scrolling down. The world is full of willing people, some willing to work the rest willing to let them. And there are these sorts of quotes we think, oh, that was him. <laughs> yeah. Did you happen to notice online the story about the kids who broke into Robert Frost's house? No. This was a huge story about mm, 15 years ago. A group of uh, local teenagers in the middle of winter thought they'd have a party at Frost's house up in the middle of the woods here outside of Middlebury. And they had a huge party. They had 60, 70 people, kegs of beer, cases of whiskey. And they got cold and they sort of chopped up some of Frost's furniture and put it in the fireplace and burnt down one wall of the house. And then they fled in panic. And about two days later, a hiker was going through the woods and smelled something and went and saw the damage done and called the police. And the police came. And uh, one of the criminals, as they called him, had, had accidentally dropped his driver's license. And he was a local high school guy. So they were able to track him down and he turned in the others. And about 40 of them were brought into court and charged with uh, arson, destroying a, a national uh, selected property, you know, property, public monument, and so forth. And uh, they, were, they went to trial, and uh, the judge called me the night before the sentencing and said, uh, oh, Mr. Perini, I wonder, you're the great expert on Frost here, I wonder if you'd be willing to let me make, give them a choice. They can either go to jail or take a poetry course on Frost from you. <laughs> I said, my God, the poetic justice. <laughs> and she said, yes. So um, uh, actually, and so 39 of the 40, of course, from me, one of the ringleaders said, I'd rather go to jail. So, <laughs> and, and they did it? They went through with it? Yes. Well, actually, we, I taught the course. to the, they, We would meet in the courthouse in a room off the courthouse, and I would teach them the poetry of Robert Frost. And, and let me tell you, they were local farm kids, 
and it was quite an adventure, you know, this, this pimply-faced girl in the front row with her baseball cap on backward. Uh, I pointed to her and I said, did you even know who Robert Frost was when you invaded that house? She said, hmm, I know who Abraham Lincoln was. So it was, I, and then I realized I had an uphill climb. Yeah, I know one person from the past. <laughs> <laughs> that was the best she could do with an historical figure. So that was, uh, so Frost has been an intimate part of my life. You know, I, I kind of read him all the time. I teach him all the time. I've been reading him since I was 15. And his poetry is a kind of field guide to New England, to Vermont. So, you know, the flora and the fauna and the way that people talk, he's got their accents down. It's mm -hmm. quite lovely to read him. I, I never, ever don't feel excited when I go back to teach Frost or to reread him. It just always excites me. It's interesting, too, I think, that it, there's something about the everyday in what he does. It's a bit like it happened in the art world when people just started painting farmers and milkmaids and no longer had, felt they had to paint religious figures all the time. It's, there's a real everyman, everyday, ordinary folk feel about his stuff and he but he finds this profundity in the middle of it doesn't he yeah well he was a vermont farmer his whole life he always had he said i always kept a farm in my backyard he did he had apple trees he had cow well he was a chicken farmer when he, a professional chicken farmer at the beginning of his career for, for 20 years before he was published he was a chicken farmer in in Derry, new hampshire so that he said that's where he learned he got the idea for poetry listening to the chicken farmers and cow farmers at, at the local uh, store and then sending things into journals and magazines, that kind of thing. That's right, but he, he only got published when he came to England at the age of 40. And he ran into Ezra Pound in London, and he showed Pound his poems, and Pound said, my God, you're a genius. And he got his book published in London and uh, wrote the first reviews of Frost, and Frost from that point on was very well known. But not until he was about 45 or 50 was Frost well known, so it was a late career. Do you think it's true of poets that uh, they get better with age? Well, I'd, I, I mean, given that I'm 72, I'd love yeah, to think that. I'd love to think you only get better. And certainly I, I, Frost and uh, William Butler Yeats were at their very best at the end. Well, that's fascinating. Thank you so much for the, your first choice, Robert Frost. Uh, and Mendy Wall is uh, easily found online and well worth a read. Let's move you along. Let's move you along to your favourite place because I want to hear this story. You've chosen Scotland. Yeah. Well, you see, in, in night, I was being chased by the by the, my giraffe board in Pennsylvania. It was a really rough neighborhood I grew up in, and they supplied lots of soldiers' bodies to the Vietnam War, and my draft board was chasing me. And so I fled to Scotland, where I enrolled at the University of St. Andrews, first as an undergraduate, then to do a PhD, which I did do, did two degrees there. Mm -hmm. And I was kind of hiding out from the Vietnam War in Scotland. It was a marvelous period in my life, but it, rather fraught with anxiety, as you can imagine as well. And um, I wanted to be a poet, so one of my tutors said, oh, you must meet Alistair Reed. He was a Scottish poet living in town. And so she arranged for me to meet Alistair at the Central Tavern. And I went, met him at noon, and we had a drink together. And I realized that this was going to change my life in some unpredictable way. And uh, I mean, he remained one of my closest friends, I mean, really for the next 50 years. We were close friends till he died recently at 90 years old, and we never were out of touch. But Alistair was my mentor. I learned to write sitting at his table in the kitchen of his cottage called Pilmore Cottage. And he was translating the great Argentine poet Jorge Luis Borges, whom I didn't know his work at the time. It was early. And Borges arrived from Argentina to work with Alistair on uh, some translations. And I met him and thought that he was this strange old blind man in his 70s going on 90, it seemed, walking with a cane. And Did he speak good English? He spoke perfect English because his grandmother on his mother's side was from England and he said English was his first language. Oh, so wow. he spoke absolutely beautiful English with an accent, but beautiful English. Being blind, he was kind of an auto, he would kind of go on automatic pilot and talk. He didn't, you know, take any visual cues from anybody. And uh, <laughs> one night, Alistair called and said, Jay, my uncle in London's had a stroke. I've got to go. Can you babysit Borges for a week or 10 days? And so what are you, and you're in your early 20s at this time. I'm 22 at this point, 21, 21. So I moved out to Alistair's cottage and moved in with Borges. And the next day, Borges said, Alistair tells me you've got this marvelous car. 
I said, I had this uh, 1957 Morris Minor full of rust. And uh, Borges said, I want you to take me on a tour of the highlands. I've always wanted to see the highlands. And I said, but Borges, you're blind. He said, oh, no. He said, don't tell me you're blind as well. I said, no, no, I've got sight. He said, good, you will be my eyes, dear boy. You'll be my eyes. So we took off and we, we traveled around the highlands. We took our, he, he said that there was a man up in Inverness called Mr. Singleton who had written to him in Argentina saying he was translating some Anglo-Saxon riddles and wanted Borges' advice. So Borges was carrying his phone number in his jacket pocket. His mother had written it down for him. His mother lived with him until she was 110 or something. And so uh, we took off. You know, We visited the Carnegie Library in Dunfermline. Uh, where Borges created quite a scene because he said that he quoted um, a famous line in English literature saying, you know, some books should be tasted, others devoured. And he grabbed a book from the bookshelf and began licking the spine of the book. And this wildly upset the librarian, a little old lady uh, who kicked us out. And, and then we took off for the, we, we, had, we spent a hilarious night, the second night on the road, at a, at a bed and breakfast. We pulled it at dusk into a little village called Killy Cranky, and uh, there was only one B&B in town, and we stopped and had a few pints of beer and checked in, and there was only one guest bedroom, and it didn't have a toilet. And in fact, there was only one bed in the room, so I had to spend the night in a bed with Borges, <laughs> which, you know, which to me was rather horrifying. You know, I won't say he was incontinent, but he wasn't exactly continent. <laughs> And, uh, and, and Morag was this 85-year-old widow. Uh, she kept telling us about her husband, Archibald. She called him Baldy. Baldy Bray, Baldy Braid. And she said he died on the crapper um, some years before, she said, told us. And, and she said, there's only the one toilet, and it's off my bedroom, so knock carefully before you come in. And she said, she said no, and she said, don't use the toilet after 10 p.m. Oh, wow. That was quite a hopeless thing. And Borges had had three pints of beer, and he was having trouble with his bladder anyway. So I'd say 13 or 14 times in the middle of the night, we had to wake Mrs. Braid, uh, Morag, and, and go walk in the, at the foot of her bed. And I would lead Borges into the toilet, and I'd sit on Mrs. Braid's bed while Borges did his business. And the last time she was so exhausted, she was a very religious woman. She'd be reading the Bible all the time. And every time we'd come in, she'd turn on her light and she'd read aloud from the Old Testament while Borges was doing his business. <laughs> to try and drown it out. Is that what she was doing? Yeah, I don't know what she was doing. But at one point, uh, finally, um, Borges was in there for about 15 minutes. And she said, what's wrong with your old man? And I said, let me just say, I knocked. I said, Borges, are you in there? He said, give me a minute. And about five minutes later, he yells through the door, it is finished. <laughs> and uh, Mrs. Braid said, the last words of our savior. <laughs> so on and on. And finally, we got to Inverness and, and we checked into the Inverness Palace Hotel. We got into the room. He said, here's the number. Go down to the desk and surprise Mr. Um, Mr. Singleton, the translator of the riddles, and tell him, invite him for dinner at the hotel. So I went down and uh, called the number and the operator said, she said, well, she said, um, this is a number in Inverness, indeed, but she said it's in Inverness, New Zealand. Oh, no. So I had to bring the bad news back to Borges. Oh, my God. He said, well, I won't ask you to drive me to New Zealand. Inverness is a very long way. Effectively, <laughs> 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 a wrong number. <laughs> and then you got to drive the Morris Miner all the way back. Oh, my God, all the way around, we went over to Loch Ness. We had a disaster in Loch Ness because Borges wanted to go out on the lake. And the woman at the little inn where we were staying gave us a kind of a canoe thing. And we go out and we just pushed offshore when Borges stands up in the canoe, raises his cane in the air and begins to recite the song of creation from Beowulf in Anglo-Saxon. And I said, Borges, for sake, sit down. And Borges leaned over and tipped the canoe and were suddenly in this icy water. Thank God we were not too far from shore, but I had to drag him back onto the shore. He was, his suit was completely dampened. He was frozen. Oh, it was a nightmare. It was a nightmare. So I was so relieved to get back to St. Andrews and to Alistair. When we got back, uh, very quickly I discovered that my close friend from high school who had been corresponding with me had been killed in Vietnam 
and I mentioned this to Borges. He was very affectionate about it and very sympathetic. And I told him that I had been getting letters from my draft board. I had seven of them, which I refused to open because I thought I wouldn't be liable um, if I didn't open them to go to, to the war. Mm-hmm. And Borges said, bring them out to Alistair's house. And I did the next night we had dinner. And Alistair built a big bonfire on the beach out of driftwood. And Borges linked arms with us, and we burned my letters from the draft board as we danced around the fire. Wow. It was very pagan and very That's very amazing. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode is brought to you by Smart Food Popcorn. Some decisions aren't the best, like skipping ahead in your favorite podcast. Think of all the banter you'll miss, the lore in the making. Luckily, Smart Food Popcorn is a no-brainer. Deliciously tasty and available in a variety of fun flavors. It's a smart decision every time. Smart food. Add smart. To learn more, visit smartfood.com. We're talking about the draft. Was it a lottery or did you have some sort of a ranking that you, as you went up the list? There was, at a certain point, a lottery kicked in. But the, my draft board seemed to be ignoring it completely because they were taking friends of mine, and I, they kept sending me letters, so I didn't open the letters. So I never know, no, I, to this day, I don't know if I was drafted or not. Wow. But um, I didn't. And in any, in any case, by the time I came back in the mid-'70s, uh, they had granted amnesty to everybody, so there was no legal liability for me. Thank for that. And he was a hugely influential man, wasn't he? Was he an influence of all, all the magic realism writers? And... Oh, I think Borges was the creator of the Latin American boom. I mean, he influenced, you know, Garcia Marquez, Mario Vargas Llosa, and uh, on and on. Did, he was did, a great... did blindness come to him later in life? In his 30s, he had a congenital disease. His, his father went blind, and he went blind like his father. So he knew his, his eyesight was dimming, but he was a massive reader, so he'd read most of the literature by the time he was 35. Wow. And then he had endlessly had people reading aloud to him. I would read aloud to him. And, and, would, and so would he then dictate his work when he, later in life? Yes, yeah. all of his work yeah. was dictated to a secretary, absolutely. That's incredible. Um, so, you know, yeah, most of his great stories were, were, were I think, pretty much dictated. So, you know, this, and in the, the stories are collected in a book called Labyrinths, which is really one of the greatest collections of fiction anybody could ever have in their hand. And I have my signed copy on my desk as I speak to you right here from Borges. And you've, writ- but you've written about that journey too, haven't you? Yes. Well, I've just published my memoir that's called Borges and Me. And it's the memoir of this uh, epic week-long journey around the highlands with Borges. How fantastic. Yeah, yeah. no, it's, uh, it's, it's, it was fun to... I had such a good time, and, and my friend Ross Clark and I have written a script version, which he's going to direct, so we're going to make a film of it. That would be amazing. And how's your memory for 50 years ago? That's quite... That's one of the things about memoir, isn't it? Trying to piece together. Well, as I say in the afterward, look, I wasn't carrying a tape recorder, so I'm trying to remember things we talked about, and, and I kind of... Inv- and so it's got a novelistic aspect to it, because I'm remembering conversations five decades earlier. Yes. And my memory's pretty good, and I had some notes. Fortunately, I jotted down a few of our conversations at the time, and I had them in my notebook, and they're pretty, pretty amazing. Like, I can tell you one of them. Um, I remember saying to... Uh, Borges, I didn't know much about, I do nothing of Borges, and, and I said, so Alistair tells me you're a writer, and he said, oh, Alistair's always exaggerating, <laughs> and I said, so, so, so you're not a writer, Mr. Borges, he said, no, Mr., please, just Borges, I said, so you're, you're a writer, have, I said, how many novels have you written, Borges, he said, none, I said, you've written no novels, no, I'd write these tiny stories, sometimes only one paragraph long, well, I was in, inwardly very dismissive, and, uh, I said, well, tell me, did you never want to write a novel? He said, want? Dear boy, 
My whole life, I dreamt of writing a novel of the Pampas, and there would be prostitutes, and there would be wars, and generations would rise and fall. And I, I said, oh my God, sounds good. But what happened? He said, well, decades passed. <laughs> and then one morning, I went to my desk, dear Jay, and I wrote a 200-word review of this novel, and that satisfied the impulse. Wow, that's funny. He sounds amazing. It was amazing. So I, could re I had all these conversations with him. I've been telling these Borke stories at dinner parties for 50 years, so I have them in my head. So I'm interested to ask you, it's so interesting hearing you talk about him. You've made biography a big part of your career, haven't you? You've written several biographies. I've got one in front of me, which a friend of mine gave me many years ago, your biography of John Steinbeck. That was my first biography, so that got me writing straight biographies. I had a call one day, and it was from Mrs. Steinbeck, who was a friend of a good friend of mine in New York. And she said, look, I'm looking for a biographer for John, and uh, I've read your novel about Tolstoy, and I think you'd be perfect. And I said, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll do it. So I took it on. And was it, so was it almost by accident? Because you've got a real flair for it. It's such a readable account. He's such a fascinating man. I became interested in, again, in him again recently because I was, had a, Travels with Charlie on an audio book. Oh, yeah. I've, I wrote the introduction to The Penguin Travels with Charlie. I, I've been reading Steinbeck since I was 12 years old. So, yeah. You know, Of Mice and Men, uh, The Grapes of Wrath. Oh, I love yeah, that. Yeah, they're books. amazing. So you mentioned there, let's, let's move on to your, another choice of yours, because your film choice is The Last Station, which is a film based on, a, on your own novel about the last days of Tolstoy. And um, it's a wonderful one with some brilliant performances of, of Christopher Plummer and Helen Mirren, who were both Oscar nominated for some fantastic performances. But you've chosen that. Tell me about your, your memories of that. Well, you know, the, the Last Station has played a huge role in my life. You know, the book came out in 1990 and was, you know, got rave reviews, front page, New York Times book review, TLS, and so forth. So, um, and it, it's, it's sold, and it was translated into 35 languages and it's had a big audience. Uh, it's about the last days of Tolstoy, and it's an amazingly dramatic story, which I turn into a novel from five or six different viewpoints. Tolstoy's wife, one of his daughters, his doctor, his publisher, and so forth, and the young man who was his, his secretary, Vladimir Bulgakov. So um, I really felt inspired when I wrote this novel and felt pretty happy with it. But, and, and I never thought of it as a film, but you know, then when the book came out, I started getting all these calls from Hollywood and producers, directors, uh, actors. Uh, and uh, the most um, impressive call came from Anthony Quinn, the great actor, Zorba the Greek. Remember yeah, him? absolutely. Uh, Tony Quinn called me, he said, hey, Jay Perini, it's Anthony Quinn. He said, <laughs> and uh, he had that amazing voice. And I thought, I have this friend, Sam Pickering, who's always calling me imitating right. people. And I said, Sam, you're, you do a great Quinn. <laughs> and he said, Jay Perini, this is Anthony Quinn. I said, Sam, you can knock it off. And he said, Jay Perini, this is Anthony Quinn calling from New York. And then I realized, oh, my God, it really is Anthony Quinn. Wow. He said, I got your number from your agent. She said, I could just call you and talk to you. I said, oh, yes, Mr. Quinn. He said, you know my work, Zorba the Greek. Yes. He said, I was in the, uh, in the one Lawrence of Arabia. I, I rode on a big horse in the desert. I said, I know who you are. <laughs> He said, well, he said, I want to play Tolstoy. I love Tolstoy. And I want to write the script with you. And we'll make it together. So I drove the next day in my car from Vermont to New York. He insisted we have a, a dinner at the Russian Tea Room in celebration. Right. And we agreed to write the script together. And then it turned out over the next, well, it was a 10-year journey with Anthony Quinn, trying to raise the money for the movie. Uh, we got a producer involved, Bonnie Arnold, who had made Dances with Wolves and Toy Story. We wrote the script many, many weekends in his huge apartment in East End Avenue in New York or in my house in Vermont. He'd come up here. And he was a method actor. You know what I mean by method yeah, actor? Sure. In the 50s, that group that would meet him, you know, in Tolstoy. And he was part of that group with Marlon Brando. In fact, Tony um, took over from Marlon Brando in Streetcar Named Desire. Uh, on, in, in 1954, so he was a great actor. But he did love, um, he, he insisted that we act out every scene ourselves. And so we'd say what the scene was and we'd sit in, the, in his big study in, and we'd act it out or sometimes his living room. And you know, once he said, you know, he, I was playing his demented son, Timothy, and he actually seized me by the throat, 
threw me on the floor and started jumping up and down on top of me. And poor Mrs. Quinn, who was his, you know, I don't know, his 15th wife or something. She had been his makeup artist on the Hunchback of Notre Dame. And she was called Yolanda. She came and says, please, Tony, you're going to kill the boy. You're killing the boy. You know, it was horrible. And, uh, but we had this dramatic situation. You know, the funniest thing was when we got to the last scene where Tolstoy's dying. And Tony said, okay, I'm Tolstoy and I'm dying. And so he lies down on his sofa in his study. He'd locked the door first because he said, this is very important. He said to Yolanda, before we begin the death of Tolstoy today, Yolanda, please don't interrupt us. <laughs> she said, Tony, when, when do I ever interrupt you? He said, you interrupt me every five minutes. I hate it. And I can't be creative if you interrupt us. So stay out. He locked the door of his study and he lies down on the couch. He said, so I'm Tolstoy and I'm dying. What am I reading? He said, uh, Tolstoy was reading Rousseau. He said, who the hell is Rousseau? I said, well, it's a long story. And suddenly, knock on the door. He said, oh, my God. Yes, Yolanda. She says, Tony, I need a word with you. She says, oh, God almighty. So she says, he says, what's wrong, Yolanda? She says, Tony, there's a big, fat Chinese lady at the front door, and she wants a word with you. Tony says, you've got to be kidding me, Yolanda. I don't know any big, fat Chinese ladies. Tell her to go back to Peking. And he slams the door. And he said, excuse me, Jay. He said, Yolanda just never listens. And so we started again. He said, okay, I'm reading. Who am I reading? I said, Rousseau. Rousseau. He said, okay, tell me about Rousseau. I said, I'm telling him about uh, Rousseau. And uh, suddenly there's a knock on the door. And Yolanda says, Tony. Oh, my God, Quinn says. Uh, yes, Yolanda. She says, Tony, the big fat lady, Chinese lady, says she's not going nowhere until she has a word with you. Uh, Tony said, look, oh, Jay, he said, let's get rid of the big fat Chinese lady and then let's get rid of my <laughs> wife. So we walked down the little hall of the department and he, you know, the little holes in the door, you can see somebody on the other side. He, look, he looked through the little squints through the little hole in the door and he, and he grunts and he turns and he says, Yolanda, that's not a big fat Chinese lady. That's Marlon Brando. <laughs> And he, and, he, and, he, and he opens the door, and there's Brando in a purple moo with his hair tied back in a ponytail. And he looked just like a big, fat Chinese lady. And, uh, and Brando said, Tony, I've been standing out here for 20 minutes. Your wife's driving me crazy. Oh, hilarious. They, they, they had acted in Viva Zapata in 1954 together. They yeah, were well, friends. he was uh, Mexican, wasn't he? <laughs> he was Not Mexican. Absolutely. Oh, no, he came over the border. He was an immigrant. Snuck over the border. He was making, he was a bricklayer in L.A., 1937, 18-year-old bricklayer. And uh, he saw an ad in the paper, uh, Cecil B. DeMille film, wanted Indians to play for a cowboy Indian movie with Gary wow. Cooper. So he went to the studio door and he knocked on the door and, and, and he said, Cecil B. DeMille said, are you an Indian? Are you a real Indian? And Tony beat his chest and said, Apache. <laughs> And, and there was a scene with Gary Cooper where, uh, you can still see the film, it was his first moment on screen, where Gary Cooper is, uh, sneaks up on Tony Quinn, who's a young Indian in the, in the, in the prairie, building a fire at night, and, and, and Gary Cooper hits him over the head with the gun, knocks him out. And the scene is where cameras are rolling. And by the way, Anne DeMille was, was, was visiting her the set that day. She was one of... Cecil B. DeMille's daughters, and she wanted to watch Daddy direct a movie. And uh, as Gary Cooper is coming close to Tony Quinn, who's building a fire, Tony suddenly stands up and says, Wait a minute, boss. I'm a real Apache. You think I'm going to build a fire in the middle of a prairie when there's cowboys around? Cecil B. DeMille said, Scott, Cod, get rid of that Indian. Get us another Indian. And, uh, and, and, and Gary Cooper said, Wait a minute, Mr. DeMille. I think this Indian's got a point. It doesn't make any sense, this scene. So they had to rewrite the scene and Tony kept, kept the part. And Cecil B. DeMille's daughter afterwards said, um, Sir, you're the, she said to Quinn, Sir, I must say you're the first actor I've ever seen who could stand up to daddy. And Quinn said, How would you like to have a milkshake with me? And they went down to the street corner and had a milkshake. And three weeks later, Anthony Quinn, immigrant from Mexico, undocumented, was the son-in-law of Cecil B. DeMille. Wow, that's amazing. And then through the 30, 40s, he was put into over a uh, over hundred films. Yeah, and he won two Oscars, didn't he? 
two Oscars. But so do you Amazing. have regret because because he, he didn't then star in in your well, film? Well, you know, we, we we you know we had raised the money. We went around talking to Saudi Arabian sheiks and mafiosi and everything, and we were ready to go. And Tony got cancer and died, and uh, so that killed the movie. And so what happened was, uh, uh, I said to Bonnie Arnold, "Please, Bonnie, don't abandon me. We got to make this movie." She said, "No, I promise you, we'll make this movie." Well, it took another nine years after Tony's yeah. death. Almost a decade, but eventually um, it did fall into the hands of she. She got it to Michael Hoffman, and I met Hoffman. We became very close friends, and um, made the movie. And it was really, I mean, it came out very well. It did well. come out well, and, and you got a very good Tolstoy in the end. In that, got a very good Tolstoy and Christopher yeah, Plummer. Fantastic. Yeah, he he was a terrific Tolstoy, and Helen Mirren just was a superb Sophia. Yeah, Tolstoy. that's fine. Sort of firing guns and trying to drown herself. The scene where she tries to drown herself. Is, I watched a film the other day and. It's, she's terrific. That really is this all kind of well documented stuff. I mean, you knew everything there is to know about Tolstoy and decided this is the bit of his life that I want to write about. You know, yeah, that's it. I knew Tolstoy's life backwards and forwards. I'd been a great fan of his, visited his houses in Russia, had read everything, and thought a great deal about him. You know, I, I've, I, you know, I've even edited Tolstoy's essays for Penguin Books, so I know his work very well in his life. And I thought, well, I want to focus just on incredible, vivid prism through which one could view the whole of his imagination and, uh, yes. and the conflict between him and his wife. So powerful. Yes, that's right. And there's a feeling you have that he's being manipulated. It's his legacy, isn't it, after what will happen with the books. But, and then in the end, uh, it's taken away from his wife, but returned to her after his death. That's right. He dies in, a, in an abandoned, in a railway station. Uh, thinking he's alone. He thinks he's dying alone with just one or two friends. And in fact, there's hundreds of reporters camped outside and his doctor's giving hourly reports to the press about his health conditions. And then suddenly, Sophia arrives in a royal train with 30 servants and they, and they refuse her entry until he's more or less dead. So he never really even knew that Sophia came to see him. And then he's buried back at the family estate, Yasnaya Poliana. So it's a very, it's a powerful story, my God. I, I have a circle of friends who read Tolstoy every day, and my every single day of my life begins, I swear, with an email from my friend who has photographed on his phone and sent to me and our group one page of Tolstoy, which we read and we discuss through the day with emails wow. back and forth. So I read Tolstoy every morning, first thing. That's amazing. That's a nice friend to have. Yeah, no, it's a great thing to do. An incredible story about the origin of that film. It's remarkable. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click gift mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. If you're looking for plump lips at last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XE and Juvederm Ultra XE, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XE or Juvederm Ultra XE. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions or if you are allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all gel fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit www.juvederm.com. 
Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi Strawberry slid right into my Taste Buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. Well, thank you so much. Now, let's take you now to uh, Bob Dylan. Let's move you, jump you forward to a love of yours. You've chosen Bob Dylan for your love of music. You know, I chose Bob Dylan because, you know, the truth is, I'm, I mean, I love music and I'm, I can actually play the guitar and the piano myself, but I'm not really a tremendous listener to of, of, of music. I listen to only, I basically listen to Bach and Bob Dylan and uh, mostly Bob Dylan. In fact, when I'm bored or can't write or in between spaces in my day, I go on to YouTube and I listen to the thousands of old YouTube videos of Bob Dylan's concerts going back, you know, 40 years. I mean, what a rich treasure trove on YouTube of Dylan videos. And so, you know, if I have any song I love of his, and I love, some, I love them all, I can listen to maybe 10 or 15 different versions over the years and see how Bob you know, ad-lib them, change the lyrics, change the me melody slightly. Uh, the rearrangements are constant. And I, and I just am never not, I'm always just so impressed by his protean creativity. I mean, there's a man who's, the gods are speaking to him. They really are. He is a, the voice of, of the, the muse is, is talking to us through Dylan. And, you know, just recently, I just listened again and again to various versions of Chimes of Freedom. You know, and then listening to Dylan on many versions himself. You know, even at, there's a lovely vi version of it he sang at Bill Clinton's inauguration. So that, I mean, it's just so beautiful. You know, I, the, the, that line means so much to me. Flashing for the warriors whose strength is not to fight. It takes me back to the Vietnam War and my decision, you know, to stay yes. out of that war at any cost. So that, 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 that that's a, like a, an anthem that's in my head. I, the, the whole thing I have memorized. It. If I, just, I sing it to myself as I'm driving along in the car. There's a wonderful show that's been on in London, and I don't know if you've come across it called Girl from the North Country, which is a, a play. Uh, really oh, I've seen it. I, I, I saw it, yes. I, I, I was, it, it's fantastic. It? I think it's marvelous. Dylan loved it, in fact. He, he went anonymously and sat there. Well, they approached him and said, is it okay if we do this? And, and he generously just gave them his songbook and said, use what you want. And then decided that he wouldn't come to the rehearsal process and I think they were all terribly relieved because it would be such an enormous <laughs> presence in the room, wouldn't it? Um, right, can you but imagine? I, I've really found it fascinating when I, I've seen it twice, it really moved me, but yeah, it was it. in hearing those professional singers, of course he's got his own wonderful tone in his voice, but you can really hear his poetry and you really get in a, a sense of why the Nobel Prize came knocking for him because it's, suddenly it's crystal clear in the versions of the songs in that show. It's really, really something. He's a, he's a remarkable poet, is he not? Oh, he is. I mean, the, the linguistic gift is, it's up there with, you know, Milton, Shakespeare and Wordsworth. You know, it's just great. It's the great, great poetry. Yeah. I'd say Whitman would be a very obvious predecessor, you know. And I saw Bob Dylan in concert, and, and I was unfortunate because of the night I saw him, it was in a huge arena, he didn't seem very happy to be there. Uh, normally when you see concerts there, they have big screens up, and you can see, but he didn't want to have big screens up, and he wore a 10-gallon hat, and it may or may not have been Bob Dylan. We just don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, he has that perpetual road show, you know, he does, he does four concerts in, a night. Uh, year round, so it's crazy, and I think a lot of the time he doesn't want. He's only on automatic pilot, or they might have a, a Dylan look-alike stand-in. It's possible. It's possible. But, but I've seen him many, many times in person on stage, and once in a very small venue, and it was quite amazing. Yes, that would be amazing. He's such a child of the sixties, isn't he? He's so completely associated with the counterculture and the protests and. A voice of a generation, really. It's the fact that he's still going strong, producing extraordinary material decades later is remarkable. Uh, That's so a model of, I love that model of constant productivity. It's a beautiful thing to see. Yes, and it's so unusual. It's so unusual in musical poetry. You get people who have a period of productivity where they write three amazing albums in five years or something. Yeah, someone like Billy Joel. He has a, you know, a little period there. He has his, gets his hit songs and then spends the rest of his life singing them. That's that's more typical. Yeah, that's much more typical. 
But anyway, great choice. Thank you for that, Jane. Now, let, I want to take you uh, out in Vermont now. We asked you to talk about food a little bit and, and if there's some important meaning for you in some, is there a meal or a restaurant? And and I've told you you've chosen right eating whilst on your boat. Well, you know, in the, in the, <laughs> you see, here in, in Vermont in the summer, I live really close to gigantic Lake Champlain. 128 mm -hmm. miles long. It's, a, it's almost like an inland sea. And I have a little 27-foot uh, boat. And I'd say four days a week, I go out on the boat, and I anchor in a cove, and I spend the day riding and swimming and eating. So I take a cooler with, uh, you know, some sandwiches, which I'll have made, or a bottle of wine that I like, uh, a jug of iced tea, And I sit there all day long, and I in my bathing costume, as you say, trunks, mm -hmm. and I write at a little table on the boat deck, and then at, when I get hot, I jump in the water and swim for 20 minutes, and back up on the boat, and writing, jump back in the water, and so and the food tastes so good when you're on the boat; it always tastes better on the water. So uh, that's to me paradise. Summer in Vermont on Lake Champlain. I love being out by myself on the boat. Is it a freshwater lake or a saltwater? Freshwater. But it, it actually it connects to the, you can, in fact, I, I once drove it down from Lake Champlain, 90 miles through the Champlain Canal to the Hudson River, and all the way past Albany, West Point, under the George Washington Bridge to the Atlantic Ocean. Wow. So that was a, a heck of a journey. Because I'm looking on a map as I'm speaking to you, and I see the boundary between Vermont and New York State runs up the middle of this huge lake. It does. Huge, skinny lake. You, so you can get um, all the way to the Atlantic Ocean from Lake Champlain, but it's definitely very beautiful fresh water, and it's pretty uh, um, unbelievably w uh, wilderness setting. You're not in a cove with lots of other uh, men on their own on boats? No, sometimes I am. Sometimes there's this one cove I particularly like, which is pleasant, where there are a few boats on a mooring, but no, you're pretty much on your own. And do you ever throw a rod over the side and catch your lunch? Yes, occasionally I do do that. In fact, you can get, uh, just last week I was on a boat with one of my sons and he caught a beautiful perch. I have three kids and they use the boat too and they love fishing more than I do. You know, you know what the name of my boat is? Go on. It's called Fishing Impossible. <laughs> <laughs> That'll do for me. That sounds so idyllic. Absolutely. Oh, it's, it's great. It's really good fun. And I really regret winter coming because I, I dread it because the boat's got to go in by mid-October and I, then I'm in misery until I can get it back in the water in May. Oh, that's wonderful. Thank you for sharing that. It sounds a little bit like Scotland too, somehow. You've got the mountains. You've got Absolutely. The fields, sheep in the fields. Wonderful. Now, I'm going to take you on to your choice. We asked people for an event or a concert they might have seen, and you've chosen something very personal to you. Uh, it's a time when you did, the only time you ever did stand-up comedy, and your support act was Salman Rushdie. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're a, well, listen, Alan, you're a stand-up comic, so I shouldn't be uh, bragging about my skills as a stand-up comedian. <laughs> But the truth is, from the time I was a teenager, I wanted to be a stand-up comedian. And in high school, I was determined that that's what I would do when I did stand-up through high school. Really? That's unusual. It's a noble calling. It's a noble calling. And my father one day took me aside and he said, I'm afraid I'm going to put my foot down. I never have said no to you about anything. But you cannot be a stand-up comic. It, it, it's no career. He said, I want you to go to law school. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> so, uh, so I, in any case, it squashed my career. And I went to college and then the Vietnam War came. And then I wound up in St. Andrews and my career and stand-up evaporated, but I always loved, you know, I give a lot of readings of my work, you know, poetry readings, fiction mm -hmm. readings, and lectures, and uh, sometimes I abandon the reading altogether and just tell jokes, because I love it so much, the audience reaction, and, uh, and this, in fact, and then about five years ago, I was giving a talk in New York City at a fairly small auditorium about a book of mine had just come out, and, and I sort of abandoned the subject of the book and was just telling jokes, and they were all having a good time. And afterward, there was a drinks party, and a man came up to me and said, uh, Mr. Perini, um, I'll bet you always wanted to be a stand-up comic. I said, how did you know that? He said, I can just tell. He said, listen, I have a, a venue, a comedy club in New York, and how about if I invite you and another writer or so who always wanted to be stand-up comics, come on and come down to New York, and we'll make a big night of it. And so I agreed. My youngest son was like panic-stricken. He said, Dad, you didn't. And I said, I did. 
and he went to, with me to New York, and uh, it was a big comedy club down in the lower Manhattan. We walk in, and there's like, you know, hundreds of people there sitting at tables, a big stage. I got butterflies in my stomach. I went into the, the, the bar nearby, and I quickly drank three gins and tonics, three. And my son called my wife. He, she said, Mom, Dad's drunk, and he's going on stage. I got on the phone. I said, I'm not drunk. I'm just calming my nerves. But I had my routine in my head. Also, I said to the guy, um, who's my supporting cast here? Who's the other writer? He said, well, we're keeping that a secret. It was very odd. And, uh, and backstage, he, he said to me, this is your um, other, the other comedian tonight is Salman Rushdie. Wow. So I said, oh, really? So I never thought of him as being terribly funny. And it turns out he's not. But, um, <laughs> well, was he under the fatwa at the time? <laughs> I think so. Taking the edge off his humor. <laughs> I think it would dampen your humor if you think somebody might take you out. Yes. Especially if, you, if, if a joke flubs, you're, done, you're gone. So I, told, I actually told some of my Borges stories, and I, I had a great time. And people thought that was great. So, I mean, I felt pretty happy about it. It made me wish I could keep doing it. I envy you being, doing it as a career. Well, good for you for overcoming the nerves, because the nerves when you first do stand-up comedy are absolutely crippling. Why it's so frightening is not a mystery. It really is frightening. Terrifying. Once you know what you're doing, it's fine, but for some reason it's... I remember I, I first comedy club I performed in, the guy who ran it was a guy who used to teach me when I was studying theatre at college. And he said, what's the worst that could happen? You walk from here, and he pointed at the microphone, to there, which is the door at the back of the room. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I kept that in my head for years. You know. it's, it's exhilarating. <laughs> is it, it's quite exhilarating, isn't it, to go out there and to be connecting to people? I think there's something addictive about it. There's something, it's a, there's an adrenaline rush or something, there's some dopamine release in the brain, there's some pleasure associated with taking the risk, getting the reward, hearing the laughter, and wanting to, it becomes addictive. It becomes something you want to do again and again. And, and I certainly what happened to me. And so Salmon didn't kill, though. Salmon struggled a bit. I think he struggled a bit. I mean, he's a char he, was, he was charming enough, but I'd say that... Uh... I wouldn't say that it, he was a barrel of laughs. I was in a restaurant once in London and I saw him, it's the only time I've ever seen him, in the corner of the restaurant and he was under the fat wire at the time and I did wonder if we should sit further away. <laughs> and I imagine, if I thought that, imagine being surrounded by people who kept backing away from you for years. Yeah, I happened to fly to Naples last summer and he was on the plane with me and I was a little nervous. <laughs> yeah. No, that's a lovely story. Thank you very much for sharing that. Now, we come to your your favourite memory and with the, the life that you've had, a fascinating life and all the work you've done and people you've met, it must have been hard to choose one. But t tell us about this memory that you've picked out. My favourite memory in some ways is sailing with Gore Vidal and Leonard Bernstein up the Amalfi Coast in Gore's boat. Wow. Let me just pick those names up. That's <laughs> impressive. I mean, that, that's not just name dropping. That's like, you know, those are, that's, that's hammering it, right? Yeah, that really is that, hard. That really is hammering it. But, uh, you know, back when I was a young man, very young, this is, this is a long time ago, I spent a year in, in Italy on the Amalfi Coast, and I met Gore Vidal. We became extremely close friends, which is why I eventually wrote his biography. It came out about two or three years ago. And so I, but I, you know, used to see him every day I would see him. You know, I wrote him a note saying, Dear Mr. Vidal, I've just moved to Amalfi and I'm a young writer living at 43 Via Torricelli Avenue. And uh, if there's ever a chance of meeting you, I'd love to. And I gave it to the, I knew he came down to a local um, news agent every day and bought a paper. And then he went next door to the bar and drank for several hours. And so I, he, that, that very day, he pounded on my door, Perini, Perini, come on for a drink. So I went and we sat and talked till like four in the morning, drinking, uh, drinking wine. That's wonderful. Did you expect to get a reply? Did you just sort no, of? No, I didn't know what would happen. Didn't know yeah. what would happen. And then it turned out he was going. He was lonely that year, and he was wandering every day down to Amalfi past. He walking past my door, and he'd pound on it, and we'd go into town together. And so we became extremely close friends. I liked it so much, I went back every summer for the most part, often stayed with Gore at his villa and with Gore and his boyfriend Howard. He, is, and he lived with Howard for 53 years, Howard Austin. Remember the first time I went up to dinner at the great villa that Gore lived in. I knocked on the door and Howard answered and I said, oh, you must be Howard. He said, yes, I'm Howard. I said, so Howard, what do you do? He said, do? I'm Gore's secretary. 
<laughs> and I said, secretary, so well, what does that entail? He said, entail? He said, put it this way, big boy, I don't type. <laughs> Stephen Fry told me a story that um, Gore Vidal told him, which was that he was, I think he was staying at the Savoy Hotel in London, and there was a bit of a kerfuffle with a young man making some demands, and the staff became involved. And uh, anyway, they persuaded the young man to, to leave Gore alone, leave the premises. And uh, when he checked out the hotel on his bill, it just said at the bottom, sundries, £30. Which <laughs> 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 so I thought was a very elegant way of dealing with the situation. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, Gore did this sort of thing. And, uh, you know, I, w w then even when Gore would come to America, I would always fly down from Vermont and spend a few days with him at the Plaza Hotel in New York. One time we were sitting there, and uh, this is about 1991, 92, 89 in there. We, we, we always sat in the beautiful Oak Room, and Gore would say, this is where my grandfather, the senator, would take me for lunch when I was a kid, and I've always stayed at the Plaza, and I've always eaten this special steak here and drunk the special wine that they have in the best cellar in New York here. He was going on and on. And suddenly a man comes up to us and said, Mr. Vidal, I recognize you. Gore said, yes, yes, uh, good, good, thank you. And he said, you are a very, very great celebrity. Gore said, yeah, I'm a celebrity, okay. And he said, I saw you on the Johnny Carson show last week. You, were, you killed it, you were great. Oh my God, you were so witty. Gore said, thank you, sir, thank you. And he said, in fact, weren't you just yesterday on the Merv Griffin show here in New York? Yes, you were, I saw you, oh my God. I love you. I, I, and, he, and he says to the waiter, Giorgio, pull up a chair. And the waiter brings a chair over and the guy sits down with us. And Gore said, uh, sir, I believe you just sat at the table with us. And the man said, yes, I, you're a great celebrity and I want to have a conversation. Uh, and he said, listen, I, I own this restaurant. It's my restaurant. I own this hotel. And Gore said, well, I don't really care. He said, listen, sir. He said, let me just say this to you very, very clearly. And I'll say it once, please. He says, first of all, what's your name? He said, my name is, my name is Donald Trump. No way. And Gore said, well, listen, Donald Trump, listen to me carefully. Please get your fat ass out of that chair. I don't dine with restaurateurs. <laughs> That's very funny. That's an amazing story. It's funny, you know, I was thinking of Donald Trump because I rather like uh, Frost. You can find so many Gore Vidal quotes online. And I'll read one to you now. It says, as the age of television progresses, the Reagans will be the rule, not the exception. To be perfect for television is all a president has to be these days. And this, of course, Gore Vidal sadly passed away, perhaps not sadly for him, before Trump took office. But uh, it was quite prescient with that one, wasn't he? Gore was dying in, in Hollywood. Um, I was, that whole summer, I was more or less there with him off and on. I said to him, Gore, he was, he was lying in his bed. I said, Gore, do you have any parting words of wisdom? He, he smiled. He said, yes, as I've said to you many times, Jay, I'm just repeat myself. Never lose an opportunity to have sex or be on television. <laughs> That's a great one. There's another one of his here, which I quite like, which made me think of him getting you out, take you to the bar. Some writers take to drink, others take to audiences, which I thought was quite nice. It sounds like he can do both. And Bernstein was on the boat? We, we... Well, you know, yes, one, some, one summer, I don't know which summer it was, I think 88, 89, Leonard Bernstein arrived and Gore called down to my little house where I was staying with my wife in Amalfi and said, Jay, uh, uh, how about Lenny Bernstein is here uh, and we're gonna, I'm taking him on a, a trip up the Amalfi Coast on my boat tomorrow. Would you, would you join us? He said, it will just be the four of us. I said, absolutely. How could you pass that up, right? I mean, he must have been quite, quite an elderly guy there, was he, Bernstein? Bernstein was probably 68. Still pretty yeah. damn vigorous, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, and in fact, it was interesting. On the, we got on the boat, I said, Le, uh, Mr. Bernstein, what brings you to Amalfi? He said, I want to try to talk Gore into writing some lyrics for me. I want to do a musical, a Broadway musical about Alexander Hamilton. No way. He said that. Did he really? Yeah, and Gore said, Lenny, I'm telling you once and for all right now, there will never be a musical on Broadway about Alexander Hamilton. <laughs> That's fantastic. Isn't that great? Yeah. I mean, and how do you not just break into West Side Story songs when you're hanging around with them? 
<laughs> well, you know, when we got back to Amalfi late at night, and it was dusk, and we ordered drinks, Bernstein suddenly went across the street and took, there was a, a butcher's shop open. He grabbed a string of sausages, came over and put them like a necklace around my wife's neck. And he said, this is your, this is your, our betrothal, darling. Will you dance with me? Says, he, she stands up and they start dancing around Amalfi and, and Bernstein is singing, Parini, I once met a girl named Parini. He was singing it loudly. It was hilarious. That's amazing. What strikes me and I talk, and listening to you talk all these fantastic stories, there's something connecting all these people who've been around you and this. Bernstein was uh, advocating for nuclear disarmament. He was opposed to the Vietnam War. There's something of that in Gulvadal too, isn't there? Oh God, yes, political uh, edge. Bob Dylan, uh, Frost similarly, um, with the, this lovely metaphor of the war, well, not really a metaphor, but the meaning of it to him. Tolstoy in that film at the end of his life, it's all about campaigns for peace, isn't it? And in the Tolstoyan way and all that. This seems to be a thread running through your... Well, you know, I've always been an activist, anti-war activist. I've always been, you know, against racism. I've always been, you know, for, for, I'm against the death penalty in America. I write op-eds on CNN all the time. I do them every every month, and I and I and I'm they're, they're protests really, and uh, it's sort of the, the the part of the '60s that that, that stuck with me. Mm. That, that if we have a voice, we have to raise that voice, and we have to stand for, uh, you know, democracy and equality, and you know. All of the values. That, I mean, uh, as Gore always said, the, the the founders of the the writers of the U.S. Constitution he said we were founded by some of the greatest men who ever lived, and he said, and we haven't heard from them since. No. So the the ideals of the U.S. Uh, the Declaration of Independence that Jefferson wrote and the Constitution are terrific. They're just never um, achieved. Yes. Well, it's wonderful. It's fascinating to find that thread in your choices, and it's been absolutely. Wonderful to share this time with you and to hear your stories. And, uh, and I can only thank you very much, Jay, for, for joining us on Seven Pillars. Alan, this has been great fun. So look forward to uh, sitting down over a, a pint with you when I'm in London. Yes, that would be a pleasure. Thank you, Jay. Mm -hmm.